Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. For today's episode, Jim is joined by strength coach, physical therapist, and founder of The Movement System, Matt Castero. The Movement System is an educational platform with a mission to make the world stronger. Matt received his bachelor's degree and his doctorate of physical therapy from Ohio State University and has worked in high school strength and conditioning, corporate fitness, and personal training. And with that, please enjoy this episode with Matt Castero. So for people who don't know, my name is Matt Castero. I'm a uh, physical therapist, exercise scientist, and uh, basically I got into the, the uh, niche, I guess, of, of teaching new coaches about strength and conditioning. Uh, I primarily teach about the concepts of, of exercise physiology, about you know, a- adaptations to resistance training and aerobic training and interval training. And how the body adapts basically to different different training modalities. Um, I touch on the psychology portion of that uh, and athlete performance, uh, a little bit into nutrition, but really movement and movement related training is, is kind of my specialty. Um, so I, you know, I'm all over Instagram and YouTube. I really just enjoy making uh, videos and, and talking to people about performance. So uh, it just it just kind of came on over time. Really, uh, I didn't go into uh, you know, this thinking that I would have a big YouTube channel and, and people reaching out to about podcasts or anything. I just kind of started learning something in the gym or from school or from, you know, friends and, and uh, conferences about strength conditioning. And then as soon as I would learn something, the first thing I want to do is, hey, how can I teach this to someone else? Right. And then just, you know, years of that before you know it, it takes off and, uh, you know, you kind of have a, a bit of an audience. I think I think it's amazing. I love that instinct. That sounds like you're a natural educator. That when your first inclination is to share with somebody else, that's a. I think it's a really. I think it's a great sign. Um, okay, so were you an athlete growing up? How did you find How did you find your way into this space? Yeah, man. So I, I kind of started in uh, soccer, track and field, cross country uh, as an athlete all throughout high school. Going through college, I just got into triathlon and started with sprint distance triathlons, competed a little bit in Olympic distance. Um, and then really late college, uh, I started getting into Ironman distance. And uh, I actually recently, over the last two years, I've been in and out of injury, but now finally actually working through a doctor of physical therapy, learning enough about you know the body and movement and working with a great coach um, that, that really helped me get out of that. And I'm back to really training hard and, and hoping to compete uh, in Ironman Arizona coming up here pretty soon. Um, so I'm kind of still, I guess, in that, in that athlete uh, mindset here. Oh, you're a hundred percent. You're definitely still at it. So, okay. Um, I have a lot of questions about that. One of them is, well, I want to learn more about the Ironman. Can you remind any listener who might not be familiar just how, how intense and how long the Ironman triathlon is? Yeah, man. So, okay. So for, for anyone who's looking to get into triathlon or interested in triathlon, I, I'm going to go on record and say that I think that a Olympic distance triathlon is the most intense. Um, I actually uh, started with sprints and then moved up to into Olympic distance. And for those who don't know, an Olympic distance triathlon, it it varies a little bit based on the course and stuff like that. But, but you're looking at roughly a mile swim, roughly a uh, 25 mile bike ride. Again, you know, the ones that I've done um, aren't always necessarily exactly Olympic lift or Olympic distance. Uh, but then, and then ending with roughly a 10 K run with 6.2 miles. Yeah. Um, and, and that can vary a little bit, but that distance, you know, you can compete in that around the hour and a half, two hour, two and a half hour mark, depending on like how competitive you are. And again, the variability of 
the course length, but that two hours is, is all out and, and really intense. When you stretch to a, a, a half Ironman distance, which is a 70.3, um, that's, that's the more common Ironman, the full Ironman, the 140.6, uh, that would be like a whole day event. And there's not nearly as many of those as there are 70.3s, but the 70.3 is a 1.2 mile swim, a 56 mile bike ride, and then a half marathon, 13.1 mile run. And those, those are actually really consistent in the distances. So that way you can kind of compare, you yeah. know, from city to city where you're doing them. But, um, you know, really you're looking at a finishing time. If you're really competitive in the four to four hour and 20 minute mark, um, as an age group athlete or a regular competitor, you might be around five and a half, six hours. Um, it's, it's intense and it, it can be a lot of fun. Um, if you like training, honestly, the training part of, of training for a 70.3 is, is the fun part because you just right. get to get, get out there and train 12, 14 hours a week. Um, that's what I like the most, you know, the, the competition itself, you kind of have to keep, a, keep yourself dialed back just a little bit so you don't burn out. So it's, it doesn't feel quite as hard and intense and all out as like an Olympic distance. Mm -hmm. uh, but the training is a lot of fun. The course is great. Usually, um, there's a lot of great places you can go and do them. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And, and what kind of injuries were you seeing in the past years? Like, what, was this a result of the training, I assume? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a result of going uh, a little bit. I, I took my, my Olympic distance training and my sprint distance training approach and then just multiplied that by two or three. Sure. To, and then thought that that would be a, an effective way to train for an Ironman. But what I realized is that it's really a different beast. Like an Olympic triathlon, you're, you're training a lot, a lot of your training is anaerobic, right? Like you're, um, you could train fairly intensely and that's still fairly specific to the, to the sport performance because you're going for two hours, pretty much all out. Mm -hmm. Right. But whenever you're training for something that's seven hours, six hours, five hours, um, you're training, you have to have a lot more low intensity training in there to be able to manage that volume. So Definitely. So some injuries that I just ran into were, were knee pain and low back pain. Sure. Um, the knee pain being the more limiting factor there and not, not a huge, uh, like, um, uncommon thing. You know, I, I think it's, it's somewhere along the lines of at least 10 to 20% of, uh, people training for like Ironman distance triathlons or, or marathons run into some, some type of knee pain each year. Mm -hmm. Um, but really it was just a, a matter of understanding training better from, from a volume and intensity perspective, and then also understanding, you know, the functional aspects of, of stability and strengthening that, that I had to incorporate this time around that I, I wasn't doing the first time around. I like it. And is that what um, you mentioned that you had some, some good advice when you started, correct me if I've got this timeline wrong, but you're doing yeah. the Ironman stuff, you, uh, and then you started your PhD in physical therapy and was it self-directed study, or did you have someone who kind of got you out of that injury hole? Yeah. So it was a little bit of both. I definitely, um, consulted with a guy, uh, a really smart physical therapist, Chris Johnson. Um, he, he's a smart guy, definitely helped me through it. Um, and then a, a lot of it was also what I was learning in physical therapy school and, and just about strength conditioning. And, and the more that I dove into that, yeah. um, just understanding like appropriate workloads, appropriate rest. Um, but really I, I, I give a ton of credit to Chris in helping me program in the marches that I needed, the, the core stability work, the, the functional training work and the mobility work that I really needed to, uh, to be able to perform. I like it. Um, okay. So you're drawn to education. So are we obviously. 
what, so I came across your work. I said this off the air, but like uh, when I was trying to get ready to hammer the CSCS, I said, I'm just, I'm, I'm being dramatic, but, but I needed, it, it was so helpful for those who don't know the CSCS is sort of, it has become the standard in strength and conditioning. Like that's, I don't think you can get hired by a professional team if you don't have one. And a lot of colleges are moving that way. And, and even at the high school level, more and more demanding that sort of certification. But the, the textbook is, is impressive. It's a, it's yeah. a true textbook. And uh, it almost feels like, I remember when I first came across it, it almost feels like there's a filter at the front end, meaning they front load it with a lot of uh, concepts and terminologies that, that uh, if you're not ready to buckle down and study, it might move you away. Like, uh, you know, uh, different energy systems, I think sliding filament theory is sort of the notorious early stage um, filter for people. So how did, how did you find yourself um, in the CSCS exam prep in particular? Was it, I assume it was from, was it from studying for it yourself or? Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, certified strength conditioning specialist is, is kind of becoming the goal standard like you said for anyone who wants to get in the strength conditioning space yeah. um, and honestly a lot of people taking this exam are, are physical therapists or are athletic trainers or personal trainers who just want that that gold standard and that next level of uh, excellence next to their name and in basically certifying that they have this this knowledge base that's it's really the equivalent of like an exercise science background so um if you have an exercise science degree, this exam is a, a bit easier because a lot of this kinesiology and, and exercise science foundation is, is really a big portion of the book. But then there's also a whole practical side to it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I really got fascinated by, by this studying it and all throughout like my undergrad experience, I actually do have an exercise science degree. So, uh, and I had a really great exercise physiology professor in undergrad that, that really sparked a lot of curiosity into the, the, the detailed workings of the muscular system and 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 honestly even the research side of things like how to, how does how do we even know this stuff right 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 um, because it's in the book but like someone put it there someone like studied this and figured it out uh, like how does that work right um so i've probably read that book 10 times <laughs> at least wow. just uh in creating creating videos and posts about it um uh yeah and i just you know I'm, I'm always fascinated by it and honestly every time i open it up i learn something else new and and then want to go teach someone. I, I like, I, I love that instinct. It, it, and I'll say two things about it. The first is if anyone is studying for the CSCS or planning to, I highly recommend they go find uh, your work. In fact, why don't we do a quick plug? Where, where do they find it? What, what yeah, the so I, I'm on YouTube, The Movement System, and then I have a website, themovementsystem.com, a podcast, uh, The Movement System podcast. Pretty much everything is The Movement System. Okay. And, uh, you know, I have depending on what type of content you like to consume, uh, different resources for you. And, and there's a ton of free resources that I have out there, the podcast episodes that are CSCS prep specific on different chapters, YouTube videos that cover different chapters. Mm -hmm. And then if you really do want one all encompassing resource, and I also have a study guide, a study course, which, which is for purchase, but then that would get you access to my whole compilation of, of in-depth study videos that basically just goes chapter by chapter through the material an hour focused on bioenergetics, an hour focused on nutrition, an hour focused on psychology, and just kind of working right through the difficult concepts with quizzes, notes, examples. Um, and then that's kind of the, the, the gold resource there that I tried to create. Um, but then again, there's all those supplemental stuff to kind of get you started too. So I'd check out the YouTube channel, the podcast, and, and maybe head over to the website. 
And and just so everyone's hearing, like, this is the first time you and I have spoken. This is not a plug. This is not like an advertisement. Um, I, I just endorse it. It was very helpful for me. And I think it would be helpful for a listener, anyone studying. Um, you present it clearly. You present it well. Um, and, and I'm telling you, once you get... Once you get 200 pages into the book and realize that there's still 300 more, it's nice to have like sort of a, a, a different sorts of stimulus. Like, you know, it's read for a while, take notes, uh, look at the video, take notes on the video, save the videos that you want to sort of refresh. I would in, in studying um, when things are because I don't have I, I didn't get an exercise science uh, degree. Uh, so mm. I had to learn a lot of those terms for the first time. So for me, a lot of it was repetition. So some of those early stage or some of those early chapters, I was taking notes. I've, you know, in fact, I probably have some right here, but was what was very helpful for me was to just sort of put a video on from you in, in my car and listen through it. And uh, you know what I mean? And just sort of subliminally just intake this. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I just want to be clear about that. We're not getting a kickback here. Uh, it's just, it's, it's an honest to goodness endorsement and, and we've used it ourselves. So um, and okay, so so the other thing that I want that was point one. Point two from what you just said was I feel the same way when I read through psychology textbooks. Just so you know, like uh, like I, I'll read through. I'll be I'll, I'm gonna I'll go work out after this. I'll read through something psych related, and something will jump out at me. I'll start taking notes in my notebook. And then I'll try to produce an article or a small video or something like that, which it's, it's just funny because it's a very similar instinct. I like this. I want to understand it better. I also selfishly find it very helpful to, uh, if I have to work through it enough to share it with someone else, I find that I come out the back end with a greater understanding as well. Um, so it, it's, it's very sort of, it's, it's in the nerdiest way possible, a lot of fun <laughs> to go through that. Yeah, it's, it's great to hear that, man. And honestly, I just like whenever I, I get that, that, that feedback from anyone that, you know, I put a year into making this thing and it, it's, you know, you put your heart and soul into it and, and all the research that you can and, and then someone takes something away from it and gets that aha moment of this is how I can now use that for my athlete. And then it kind of goes down the road because honestly, I think everyone has a little bit of that in them and, and everyone expresses it differently. Right. But, but everyone has that somewhere in them that they want to take information in and, and find a way to share it in their own way. Right. Like, for some people, it's going to be one-on-one -on -one coaching yep. and and improving their conversations and improving the 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 way that they interact with people. For other people, it's going to be as a as a team member and in helping their team, you know, build some type of resource or, or create some type of outcome. Yeah. Um, so I, I think everyone kind of has has that instinct, you know. To some degree or other, yeah, for sure. And in this field, absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, all right, so I, something just occurred to me. So you've you've taken a long time. You mentioned you put a year in it into it, and, and I can't imagine how many hours over the course of that time. Um, wh what were some of the major challenges to creating resources like this? Because I, we find this all over the place. I've found it myself before. You have this inclination to do this thing that's not been done before. And um, you know, one of the, the most difficult parts I find about writing your own script is that the next page is always blank. It's one of these sort of, it, it's just the truth of being entrepreneurial or, or, or creating new territory, whatever it might be. So yeah. yeah. What are some of the roadblocks? What were some of the struggles that you've had along the way? Man. So yeah, some, somewhat it's, it's uh, what to include and what to say, but also somewhat it's a, it's about what not to say and what not to include in things. So yeah. You know, <laughs> 
I, I can make a YouTube channel about anything. Like, you know, the strength conditioning field is super broad. Like if I'm kind of using my area to teach new strength and conditioning coaches, primarily people in their 20s and 30s who are looking to learn program design and nutrition and exercise physiology, there's a hundred and a, a thousand things that I could do on any given day. Yeah. So it's just about creating like a framework of what type of content you want to produce. Um, so for me, I just kind of like to dive into one topic and um, explore it broadly and then kind of filter it down to like a, like a, a, a level of what I think is most important, most essential, what provides the most um, takeaways that are practical and, and then, you know, filter that even deeper into the, the content platforms that it makes most sense, the most sense for. Right. So, and there are so many great people to learn things from. Um, I, I've definitely not learned all this on my own. Like I, everything that you learn is really from someone else. So just diving into other people's, you know, research, other people's content, um, consuming it and then deciding which way to go with that, you know, and, and how to actually filter that into something that's really useful that provides people with a lot of takeaways and things that they can actually say, okay, now I understand this and I can go use it with my athletes or, right. or the people that I work with. I love it. I think, I think that's exactly, I feel similarly about that kind of stuff. And in the doing of that, like, do you ever see, do you ever find yourself in a place of self-doubt? Do you ever wonder like, is this going to pan out the way I think it will? Uh, when you started doing this sharing, um, mm -hmm. you know, was it, is it kind of exactly what you expected or what does that look like? You no, know, I, I think I am lucky to have a, a generally a uh, positive personality type and like a sense that I, I I don't really take feedback too too harshly and I'm not like super worried about like if this goes over the wrong way or what if it's wrong right like I kind of always put things out with the understanding that like this is the best that I know of as of right now and honestly there's been a number of things that I've been incorrect about over the years and I think it's just more important to keep learning and keep uh, improving than it is to actually worry about putting the best information out or the absolutely correct information out because we're always learning, right? Like mm -hmm. um, aspects of how I would design programs years ago, I would, I would tell people about it, but uh, you know, I would understand more nuance and understand the research on acute to chronic workload ratio and understand energy systems better. And I write programs diff differently now than I did three years ago, even though like three years ago, I would have been explaining how I wrote programs then, right? And three years from now, I'm going to write even better programs and teach people, you know, about that and look at back at the programs that I'm writing now and, and think, man, like these could have even been better. Right. But it's always going to be that way. So right. I don't think you can get too caught up in it. Right. Like you just have to, as you're learning, you know, share. Um, yeah. I, so what you're reminding me of is it, it seems to be like you're defining in a lot of ways, sort of your own growth mindset to put it, you know, to put a term to it. But like mm -hmm. there's this combination of optimism, willingness to work, humility and uh, recognition that you'll, you too are going to evolve over time. You, you, I think the best educators are, are fantastic learners. And, uh, and, and that kind of makes sense or, you, or you'd hope it would work like that. So, um, all right, I'm going to put you on the spot. You ready? Go for it. Um, you mentioned acute to chronic workload ratios. Um, I, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to give you a quick snapshot um, for programming conceptually. So I'm working with a swim team right now mm -hmm. and we're trying to go over, uh, you know, we've got phosphagen, fast glycolysis. We're going through the energy systems. And what, what I have found many working with many, many teams, especially on the conditioning side of things, trying to train energy systems. And I wonder if you found the same thing. 
um, is that a lot of people with amazing intentions and amazing practice plans will, will find themselves uh, working primarily the oxidative system in the sense that, it, you know, you might do a sprint, but, but if, you, if you're going to run a, a hundred yards and, uh, and rest for five seconds, um, you know, you're not actually speed training in the way that you think, in the way that you want to. So um, yeah. could you maybe give us sort of a, a review of some of that? And, and I won't put you on this, but you don't have to go too deep into the research, but just sort of an, an overview of that. Um, and then if you want to give a shout out to this uh, swim coach that I'm, that I'm working with in, in the form of what the best way to do that in the pool might look like, hypothetically, I'd love sure, to throw yeah. that around with you. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit generally, and then we'll get more specific. So um, it's a little bit easier to quantify this. And a lot of the research is done on runners and cyclists and okay. rowers, because you can, you can track metrics better. So you can, on a rower, you can, you know, see the power on a, on a bike, you can see the power output on, on a run, you can use a timer. And I guess in, in swimming, you can use a timer as well. Um, but let's use the cyclist example first, because I think it's, it, the power numbers really make it uh, tangible. So if you're a cyclist and you're uh, training to be able to perform like a, a sprint at the end of a, like a crit race, and if you're not familiar at all with cycling, it's all good. Just know that you're trying to go really fast on a bike. Yeah. Uh, that's your goal. So um, if you're a sprinter on a bike, you kind of ride behind some other people for a lot of the ride. It be, it's very aerobic and, and fairly, fairly easy, actually. Um, for a lot of the portion of the ride. And then at the very end, you need to really sprint hard. So that sprinting cyclist needs to train that power and sprint and maximal speed system, as, as well as some, some of the aerobic side. So let's just say that their sprint is going to be at uh, 700 watts for 30 seconds, 40 seconds. And that's their goal is to reach this. And that's like sure, yeah. crazy fast for anyone who doesn't know. But like, maintaining 500 600 watts is like an all-out sprint on a bike and if you want to be able to do that for 20 30 seconds um and maybe even multiple times on stages you need that power system to be to be developed so you could take a couple different training approaches and now we're going to talk about interval training so with interval training you could do a 500 watt sprint or you could do you could do an all-out sprint like a 10 out of 10 all-out sprint yeah. and then you could rest for 20 seconds and do another 10 out of 10 all-out sprint and then rest for 20 seconds but what you'll see if you take that approach is that your first sprint will be at 500 watts your next sprint will be at 400 then 300 and then 300 right. 250 and before you know it your sprints are really just aerobic you know a little bit higher than aerobic bursts of energy and no longer are you training the specific enzyme pathways, the specific uh, energy system pathways that are associated with cycling at 500 watts, mm -hmm. right? So, so instead, what you can do is you can apply these principles of work to rest ratios and, and do a 500 watt or a 80, 90% all out sprint for 20 seconds and then rest for three and a half minutes, right? Mm -hmm. And then whenever you go again, if you, if you got 480 watts the first time, you'll probably be able, to, be able to get 470 to 480 watts the second time, rest for another three minutes, 470 watts, rest for another three minutes, 470 watts. Mm -hmm. And over the course of a 20, 30 minute training session, where you're actually spending 20, 40, 60, 80, 120 seconds cycling at 480 watts. So you're going to get all of those adaptation from 
all those adaptations from time spent at that really high wattage. Hmm. And you're losing that basically if you don't uh, give yourself adequate rest. And this works for sprinters as well, right? Like if you're doing 100 meter repeats, uh, so you might be running 100 meters uh, and, and maybe you're a high, a high school or a college sprinter and you're sprinting the 100, 200 meter and that's your competitive distance. And let's just say you're running like 11, 12 seconds. If you're training and in training, you're hitting like 12 seconds on that hundred, that first hundred meter, and you give yourself a full like three minutes or a, a 300 meter walk in between before that next sprint, you might again be able to hit 12 seconds or 12.1 or 11.9. And, you know, over the course of a hour long training session, you may get six, eight, 10 sprints at near competition speed. Right. Uh, or, or whatever your target speed is that's effectively training maximal speed, right? Because if you start doing sprinting where you're sprinting for 100 meters, then you're jogging for 100, then you're sprinting for 100, then you're jogging for 100, that might be okay for conditioning for an 800 or conditioning for the 1600 meter run, but you're really not training the aspects of maximal speed. You're not going through the hip extension range of motion that you will be when you're actually sprinting. Mm -hmm. You're not going right. through the, the neurophysiological pathways that are involved in, in sprinting with your type two muscle fibers entirely, right? Um, but if you can give yourself adequate rest and get that time, um, you can actually specifically train those pathways that are gonna carry over to sport performance. And I'm sure this works the same way with swimming, right? Like um, whether you're doing 50 meter repeats with um, you know, a six by 50 meter or an eight by 50 or a 10 by 50, maybe every other one you're doing really low intensity kicking drill and then you're doing a 90 percent uh like a 90 percent goal speed for a 50 right and that way you're actually hitting you know the speed that you're trying to hit for that 50 um and you're actually getting close to it uh time after time basically right so you can apply this to any sport but that's that's kind of the principle involved i you're you're so spot on and it's, it's so similar to the conversation I had today that I'm really like encouraged by that. And I'm going to share this with that coach. We call it, um, you know, one of the mantras of the good athlete project is does your behavior match your goal? And um, that's, I, I pose that to coaches all the time. I actually call it the seven quarter question. So like, do, do like, cause everyone wants to be, we want to be the fittest team on the field. We want, you know, fitness is such a priority. And I think that's fine. I think I, I love that idea for a lot of reasons, but, but um, you know, you don't have to play seven quarters, you know, or do you want like, how fit do you need to be? Isn't the question as we evaluate our, our, you know, our performance over the season, do we have the burst at the end of the game that we had at the beginning of the game or, or you know, have we spent time developing that? So, you know um, you can go seven quarters at, 70% max velocity is that is that what you really think is best to get you to the next level of your performance and, and right and and I think what, what we run into more often than not is like you mentioned you know a three minute rest time in the middle of practice say that's a lot like you know and so so that's that's another place that we often try to come in um, in conversations with coaches is we we do we we think, uh, and I'm just sharing some of our frameworks here. We call it the UMA framework, understanding motivation access. Do they understand what's going on? Are they, does it align with their motives? Are they motivated to do it? And they have, do they have access to the tools or the resources of the people to get that done? If, you know, we gotta, we gotta hit all three. Anyway, um, what, what I find oftentimes is that coaches, um, 
usually amazing coaches, really well-intended, like how many sport coaches just know that, you know, the physiology that you just laid out, uh, how, how many of them just know that? And, and to credit to them, and, and why should they? they you know, they, that's not what they are experts in. They might be an expert in lacrosse, field hockey, football, whatever, swimming. Um, you know, and, and I think more and more, probably over the last couple of decades, it's been recognized that strength and conditioning is distinct from, you know, it's happening in conjunction with, but is distinct from sports. So to have experts in both fields um, communicating on ideas like this, I think is really really important. Um, yeah. And I honestly, I think you, you and your knowledge will be really helpful in, in that, in, in coaches navigating the, the, um, the, I guess the, the intersection between sport coach uh, understanding of uh, physiology and training and strength conditioning, understanding of physiology and training, because it comes down to like a lot of uh, sport coaches, frankly, have like not the best understanding of the physiology of it. So they may just think like whatever feels the hardest or looks the hardest is the most effective, right? But if we have a better, more nuanced understanding of this and we could show, um, you know, through science and, and also through the practical application of, of writing good programs, better results from training that doesn't necessarily feel as hard, um, you know, then, then how do we navigate that, uh, that mindset that sport coaches might have that you know, may not entirely be accurate, right? You're so right. And that's why I'll give you the, our mantra again, I think it's really, does your behavior match your goal? It's, 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 a, I think a really provocative and important question. We call it, we call it, uh, it's the mantra of practical mindfulness is what we, that's what we call it. Uh, because like, yeah, tough is good. Tough is good. If you're trying to get the kids tough, you know what I mean? But, it, but, but we try to encourage people to say, okay, but if you're trying to make them faster, maybe, you know, now the conversation shifts, you know, I, I think there's space, I think there's definitely room for um, really challenging training, you know, and, and, and if oh, yeah. the outcome is, you know, let's, sometimes you need to be, t- you want to be a football player, you cannot be good at football, um, and anything but tough, right, that, that's fine, that's fair, and if the reason that you're not winning games is lack of toughness, then sure, build toughness, but if you're not winning games for lack of speed, or size, or strength, or, you know, then that's where this folds in and, and we really have to take a closer look. So um, it's really, I really like that. That's, that's like kind of figuring out what the limiting factor is here, right? Like if, if, uh, if, if your limiting factor is, is speed, right? Like let's, let's put our training resources towards speed, right. Versus putting our training resources towards like grinding efforts. Right. But, but then we, we do reach that intersection where like maybe a coach understands uh, in, in maximal strength really well, for example, yep. like they come from a powerlifting background and they are really, really good at achieving the outcome of improving athletes one rep max mm-hmm. because they understand the program design that's specific to one rep max tra- training. They understand the aspects of recovering from one rep max training um, and, and they understand that really, really well, but they might lack the understanding of training speed strength or training strength speed or training speed Right. And, and we're creating uh, in their mind, they're they're moving the athletes towards the goal of of better strength for better strength. But really, the goal is strength, better strength for speed. Right. If right. speed is right. the factor. Right. So now how do we shift the conversation with the sport coach? How do we shift the training modalities that we're using? How do we shift the the programs that we're designing to optimize for the, the limiting factor of the athletes that we're working with that we're seeing? Yeah, you're right, Matt. And, and more and more, I think um, 
I think more and more what I've seen, coaches are becoming open to that. They realize that there's something else going on. I think, I think strength and conditioning, I'm speaking specifically about the high school level right now, although the college level has a lot of room for growth too. I don't know if people realize that the top end, you know, you hear about these six massive six figure salaries, you know, these five, $600,000 a year strength coaches. Uh, but that doesn't run through the entirety of college athletics. That's at the, at the pinnacle. So I think there's a lot of room for growth in the field at the college level, but especially at the high school level, uh, largely, I mean, kind of what you were just saying, I think there needs to be a point person on every campus that um, that can be a resource for the folks in the athletic department can run a strength and conditioning program and can align all of that with what's going on in physical education. I think it serves everybody. Physical education is so re- it's, it's challenged year over year. It's becoming challenged from resource perspective. You know, um, is this valid? You know, whatever. The, the more physical education can adopt really good performance training, strength and conditioning uh, methods, the better PE will be. The more uh, an athletic department gets an expert on campus, not only will kids be more prepared to go into the season, but then the communication with sport coaches will allow them to be even better and healthier and, and high performing in season. So it is my opinion and hope that um, that we will see more and more of that at the high school level, because kind of like what we said, like, you know, I want my football coach to be the best football coach he can possibly be and be able to refer to the strength coach when he's got questions on strength and speed and performance-based outcomes. So. Yeah. And honestly, I'll kind of give the listeners a little bit of an idea of how this looked, at least whenever I was interning in strength conditioning at the college level, Um, because I think this is a good idea of like a, a snapshot of where it is for certain programs versus like, and then we could kind of have a discussion of where it could go. So, for example, at Ohio State, State, by the way, I don't mean to cut you off. That's where you studied, right? Yeah, yeah. So I studied exercise science at Ohio State and then continued physical therapy at Ohio State. So I was there for for basically eight years. Um, And in in undergrad, my last year of of exercise science, I spent, I think, 500 hours with an internship with strength conditioning under an assistant strength conditioning coach working with Olympic sport teams. So pretty much any sport that's in the Olympics, we worked with that team. We worked with swimming, basketball, baseball, uh, a little bit of baseball, but more like track and field, uh, you know, cheer, uh, synchronized swimming, like all these athletes, right? And um, at least the way it worked at Ohio State was that there's a head head strength conditioning coach, there's an athletic director, so we can kind of see this a little bit of a pyramid Mm -hmm. uh, of, of, of leadership and, and obviously the athletic director has a ton of huge responsibilities. Um, the head strength conditioning coach has a little bit more of a responsibility over the strength conditioning program itself, but then there's a ton of assistant strength conditioning coaches. Yeah. Um, at least at Ohio state, at least 10 strength conditioning coaches that were all assistant strength conditioning coaches working under the head coach that had different sport teams. Right. And, um, with within those 10 assistant strength conditioning coaches they also had other resources they had an athletic trainer Mm -hmm. um really interesting was that they had an athletic reconditioning specialist which is not at a lot of programs Uh, i can talk about that a little bit specialist yeah she was a physical therapist yeah and uh she was considered an athletic reconditioning specialist she was basically the resource for all of the strength coaches to have who had questions about athletes who had athletes with certain movement deficits that they were seeing, but they didn't know how to take care of. Mm-hmm. Um, so wow. she would integrate her training and her physical therapy into the strength conditioning program and, and actually be there 
to, you know, if there's a team of 40, you know, women soccer players, she could take out a group of five women soccer players who were struggling with something that the, the assistant strength conditioning coach wasn't comfortable entirely with addressing. And as those other 35 athletes are working on, you know, hang cleans and box jumps, uh, those five athletes who were struggling with something could kind of go to the athletic reconditioning specialist and work, you know, in, in some capacity on, on whatever they, their deficits were. And, and that really leads me into a, a question for you. So uh, there was a, uh, a psychology department and that sports psychology was a, a resource for individuals, for athletes who had um, specific concerns. But I didn't feel that it was as integrated as athletic training is, as in, in the case of Ohio State, at least, as physical therapy was right integrated right into it. Like athletic trainers here, strength conditioning coaches here, right next to each other, talking day, day after day, um, you know, bouncing ideas off of each other, literally sharing in a conversation between athlete, coach, and trainer, um, right? And, and I think that maybe there's room to move towards that with sports psychology, with nutrition, to have that like more integrated approach. So, so how would you see that playing out, maybe in a college setting, a high school setting, um, a private practice setting, however you want to take that? I think it's a really good question. And I think, you know, um, first of all, to not include the mind in performance is, is silly. You know, like uh, to not recognize the psychology, um, psychology and physiology influence each other constantly. And, you know, we actually have this framework called the higher performance framework and the bedrock level, the very base level, um, we call it bedrock, it's eat, move, sleep. And if we're not getting doing those very well, um, higher order performance in any aspect of life, on the court, on the field, in the pool, certainly academically, but relationally, socially, like it, it'll, all of it will come down if, if you don't hit those big three. Um, so it's, but, so it's intertwined, right? Like um, they feed off each other, they fuel each other. I, I think one thing, I, I don't have an exact prescription regarding like how I think it could integrate other than it's, it's clear to me that communication is, is the key to everything. In fact, that's one of the things that we do in our sort of education consulting practices. We evaluate systems of communication is, is there, are there too many silos on a team or, or, you know, or what's the best way to communicate? How do we troubleshoot? Oftentimes we'll find maybe there's too many apps going on at the same time and we just need to streamline the way coach and player communicate. Anyway, so just building communication between, I think, the four parties, um, strength, uh, athletic training slash rehab, sports psychology, and sport coach. Like, I, I, like, if I were an athletic director, I would encourage a preseason and maybe quarterly meeting between um, those four people. And an hour at a table together is, is mandated. And I love a good whiteboard. So I'd put them up at the whiteboard and, and uh, just troubleshoot ideas. I would say one of the things that makes us distinct though, or, or one of the areas that we're trying to go is we've got this concept called beyond strength. Um, we've got a website. In fact, we can talk more about that. I, um, but beyondstrength.net is, is a place where we have a lot of, we're, we're starting to build a, a good database of resources, but uh, we're, not, we're not as interested in sports psychology as we are psychology through sport for life. Like you mentioned growth mindset in, in your practice, like my man, like you can learn growth mindset through sport 
really well. Anything that's been well studied, grit, resilience, conscientiousness, empathy, like there's, you know, and pick a, a character staple that's well researched. There's a platform in sport and more and more I'm recognizing in training for sport that you can onboard these things that will help you both in the moment, but most importantly, help you for life. And that's really that line where it's like, um, there are a lot of things I mentioned the, the two light bulb moment before we hit record, but, um, you know, for the sake of the audience, light bulb one in the development of the project was that, that through the lens of cognitive neuroscience and social theory, sports might be the most powerful educational platform that exists. Light bulb two was we're not always using it that way. So, um, you know, to, to kind of just go down this line a little further sports psych, like, you know, I, I hear people get, you know, I hear adults try to get kids hyped up in, in some pretty terrible ways sometimes. And for me, it's always like, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll use an example I've used before, you know, um, someone standing on the sideline, a coach standing on the sideline, talking to a young defensive player saying, get to the quarterback and break his effing neck. Except he didn't use effing. He's, you know, he's cussing at, at like a 16 year old, 17 year old. And it's, and, uh, and I get it. What I, you know, I get it. I played 16 seasons of football. I get it. But but I've also heard that same coach say that football is teaching lessons for life and like life lessons through football. And I'm like, I, what life lesson was that exactly? Mm-hmm. You're telling a 16 year old to go permanently injure another 16 year old. Like, what does that transfer to? So, uh, again, it's not sports psychology, how to maximize the moment necessarily, although that is important but it's psychology through sport for life that appeals to us a lot. And then, you know, that same coach, and this was in a sort of uh, this, that was, it just so happened to be in an observation post-workshop and I was able to follow up on, but we get to ask that, does your behavior match your goal question? And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not, I'm not going to yell at at another adult. Um, But I would say like, you know, what, what's your goal? Did that moment, did that behavior map onto it? And again, just encouraging that process of, of self-reflection um, has been very important. So um, long answer to the, the question. I don't know where it's headed, but I do know that we want to be part of it. And even if it's just team by team, um, we're pretty happy to be doing the work that we're doing. So, yeah, yeah. And um, I think your leading questions to coaches and uh, that approach in one way or another can can can, uh, I guess, open up a lot of dialects that coaches may not even be familiar with. So, for example, like if we're talking about a, a men's soccer team and we, we know that these this group of men, uh, whether it's high school or college, are working with a sport coach, they're interacting with a strength coach, they're interacting with, um, you know, nutritionist, and maybe they have a sports psychologist that's a resource to them. Um, if we're thinking about, like, what's limiting those those that group from performing at a higher level. Uh, most of us as strength coaches, as a parents of that team are thinking about things like, okay, are they getting enough post-workout nutrition? Are they uh, doing the right amount of training? Do they need a more massage gun? Do they need, uh, you know, what do they need? And we're thinking about all of these factors, but we might miss something big like team culture, right? Yeah. Like is team culture, the factor that's holding back and we're adding massage gun, right? Like, right, right. Exactly. You know? Um, so I guess teams like just need to understand, like maybe they don't know what like their limiting factor is. 
And maybe they need someone to like prompt them with some questions um, or like a different way of interacting with uh, someone that knows something different than them yeah. to, to point that out, right? Because maybe it is team yeah. culture and not, you know, like better heart rate variability metrics and, right. and right. You know, more technology in the gym. Like maybe we're giving the wrong prescription because, because we, we don't see something right in front of us, you know? I, I, I agree with you completely. And that's like, that's really at the heart of what we do. That's why we've come to call ourselves a, a non we're an education consulting foundation. We go just like you bring a business would bring in uh, a consultant. That consultant doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily more intelligent than the business owner, you know, in, at least not in any absolute concrete way, but consultants are often able to come in and recognize the blind spots. You know, they're, they're, they're able to scrape the edges and see the things that the person who was right in the thick of it wasn't able to see. And um, I think that alone, just bringing the outside perspective is, is often really valuable. But then one thing that we find, um, one thing that we look for is, in fact, I don't know if people, people aren't gonna be able to see this, so maybe it's not a good idea to bring it up, but we, we, we do a lot of pre-survey, uh, not a lot, a very a manageable amount, but we do some, some pre-surveys to try to identify what, what some of the major levers in a, in a situation might be. Um, what are the performance levers? What are the levers within culture? Um, and, and what we'll often find is there's something on the base level, the bedrock level, that is in, it, getting in the way of something on, we call it the LCR level, language communication relationships that, you know what I mean? That, and ultimately like you, you, it's, I picture like Jenga, right? You're pulling out these pieces without, and, and all of a sudden the thing becomes less stable and, and we don't even recognize it. And, and that's where the outside perspective comes in. That's where the consultant comes in. And uh, yeah, so I think you, you hit our, our approach kind of on the head. We, we wanna help people see um, the levers that need to be pulled and then support them um, you, with actionable strategies to do so. Yeah, man. And it, it honestly, it's different for everyone. And, and definitely you know, coaches listening to this may have like a small group that they work with. and may just be able to take like one or two things away from a, a podcast or a video that, that, you know, you or I put out or someone else puts out um, and, and be able to apply it right there. Um, you know, and other coaches are going to need to dive a little bit deeper into this because they have, you know, a bit more of a challenge in front of them, you know? Right. Yeah, you're right. It's case dependent. And that's why I would, I would say to kind of bring it all full circle. That's why I'm, I've, I am so grateful for you to uh, not only jumping on today, but, but all the work that you've put into um, doing that for people. I think education, you know, man, maybe, maybe at the end of this pandemic year, it's the first, first, uh, first time in, in some people's lives, at least, at least that they've been able to really reflect on just how important education is and just how different the world is in its absence. Um, so yeah, thanks for all the good work that you're putting out there. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to know you, man. This is, this is, this is good stuff. And I, I, I hope people go check you out. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on too. And honestly, I, I really appreciate you uh, introducing me to new ideas to learn more about because you know, just like you, I'm always trying to learn, looking to, to find my own deficits. So, um, you know, just having this conversation, really helpful. I love it, man. Always learning. That's the key. Do you need business cards? Do you need flyers, posters, custom thank you notes, or any sort of stationery to take your business to the next level? If so, then you've got to see the good people at Mighty Printing. They've got two locations. One of them is up north in Glencoe, Illinois. The other is right in the heart of Chicago on 180 West Washington Street. 
They do most of the printing for the Good Athlete Project and we just could not do our business without them. They've also worked with teams like the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago Blackhawks. They've worked with Let Us Entertain You Restaurant Group. They do holiday cards, they do wedding cards. They help you, they help you not only celebrate special occasions, but make them that much more special. And like I said, if you are a small business owner or a large business owner, they will give you the sort of personalized service combined with incredibly high quality goods. You just can't find that combo, honestly, anywhere else. Find them online at mightyprint.com. That's M-I-T-E, print, P-R-I-N-T, dot com. And on Instagram, same thing, at mightyprint, M-I-T-E, print. And tell them the Good Athlete Project sent you.